this evening. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at that uh, as we finish up our look, particularly at um, the kingly role that Jesus provides, and more specifically looking at the king and his kingdom. And we've been spending a lot of time working through and discussing what Christ as king taught and said about the kingdom and what he did as king. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20 in just a few moments. Uh, But I want to read it together, pray, and then we'll go back and review some things and then look at some other things. And uh, we might be done a little early tonight. I know you don't believe that. I've said that over and over again. I think we're going to do it today. I think we're going to be done early today. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say? That I am. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, you are the ruler of this universe Father, you spoke into existence. Your Son spoke into existence. All that we see around us. He is the King of creation. And Father, we, this is an irrefutable truth from your Word. Father, it is also a truth for us who are your people that He is our redeeming King. And so, Lord, as we continue to mine the riches of the teaching of our King, may our hearts be stilled and quiet before you today. May we humbly come before you and before your word. May you work by your spirit in our midst, Lord, convicting us of sin, encouraging us with your promises, and giving us a fire, a desire to go out and to share the hope of the King of glory with the world around us. So, Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. So, again, just to quickly review some of the things we've looked at the last several weeks, we've seen that Jesus' message when he was on earth, his core message was a message about the kingdom of God. Matthew and Luke both remind us that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
And this preaching included the command to repent, the command to believe, and a reason for that repentance and belief, which is found in the fact that the kingdom had come near. And why had the kingdom come near? Because the king was there. And Jesus provided proofs of his kingship through these amazing miracles that he did, through the authoritative teaching that he provided. This was a message given by the prophets. They spoke, Isaiah spoke, of a king who would rule in righteousness and peace. The psalmists speak of the king who would come and defeat his enemies and rule over them, and the king who would serve as a mediator, a priest between God and man. Of course, we know Isaiah in Isaiah 53 speaks of how this king will suffer for the sake of his people, and then Zechariah tells us of the day in which Christ or the, the king will come and enter his palatial city. And we see that for all of these things fulfilled in what Christ accomplished as king on the earth. Now, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and this was good news, again, because the king had come, and he had come to reign. And because the king had come to reign, the kingdom was now available to all who turned from other kingdoms and came to the king. Everyone who did this would be granted access into the kingdom. But again, as, as we've seen, this is a spiritual kingdom. The king came not bringing a physical kingdom, not bringing a kingdom of this world, but rather the kingdom that Christ sought to bring was not just simply to restore physical boundaries of a physical nation, but rather to unite both Jew and Gentile together into a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus displayed this spiritual kingdom as he showed his authority over sin, as he proclaimed the spiritual nature of his kingdom to Pilate, as he commissioned the disciples with proclaiming the coming of a spiritual kingdom. And the spiritual nature of that kingdom we saw two weeks ago was clearly perceived in the conversion of the thief on the cross. Here was a man who was dying justly for his sins. We see everything necessary for a believing response to the gospel and what this thief said. He recognized his own sin, recognized he was justly condemned. He rebuked and turned from his other friend who was mocking Christ, and he set and sought to set his only hope upon Christ as he said, Lord, remember me when you enter your what? Kingdom. And he recognized that the one who had the right to grant access to the kingdom, the one who had the ultimate right to grant that access, was not the religious rulers, it was not the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, it was not even him's own efforts, but rather entrance into the kingdom is granted finally by the king. And Jesus responds and turns to this man and gives him the promise that today, as he were to die on that cross, as Christ were to die on that cross, that day he would be with Christ. He'd be with the King in paradise. So what does Jesus say about the kingdom? And this sort of catches us up to what we're going to be looking at this evening. Again, Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and the primary message was a call to repent and to turn to Christ. But he also, in his teaching, particularly to his disciples, described the nature and, and the details of what the kingdom that he had come to bring would be like. 
And so we see, first of all, that Jesus describes the ethical implications of the kingdom in one of the greatest, in fact, the greatest sermon preached on the planet, the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And it begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on and goes through all of those Beatitudes and ends with, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He is starting that entire sermon by pointing to the fact that there is another kingdom that provides hope. And he goes through and describes what it means to be a member of that kingdom. One of the things that is often mistaken about the Sermon on the Mount is, is at times people will look at it as a moral compass for entering the kingdom. But that's not Jesus' message. Jesus' message for entrance to the kingdom is repent and believe. But that does not then make it so that you can enter the kingdom and live however you want to. And so the Sermon on the Mount provides some ethical charges from Christ into how we're to live. And primarily, he doesn't seek to adjust or change or mold our outward appearance, but rather Jesus seeks to show that kingdom people are people who are changed primarily where? In their hearts. In their hearts. And we see other points that the trust that we have in our king is continued out as we trust for him to care for us. We see it in the prayer that we pray, the the Lord's prayer that's mentioned there, as we pray, your kingdom come. It's seen in the charge at the end in Matthew chapter, or at at the end of Matthew chapter 6, that As we're not to worry about the things of this world, God will provide those things, but rather we are to seek first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those other things will be added to us. And so when we come and when you read the Sermon on the Mount, I hope you read the Sermon on the Mount multiple times a year. I think it is a helpful practice and discipline for us to go back and to see what does it mean to be a member of the kingdom And be challenged with things that say, uh, words that Jesus says, let your light so shine before men. You know, if you have the light, you don't hide it. A city on a hill can't be hid. That we are to love others sacrificially and care for them. That we are to love God completely. And that ultimately, the goal of someone who is in the kingdom of God, one of the things that Jesus points to that reminds us of our dependence upon the king is that entrance to the kingdom is given to those who are perfect. Those who are like the heavenly father. We are to be perfect as he is perfect. And no one, no person, save one that has walked this earth has met that qualification, and that is Jesus Christ. And so our only hope then is to trust in the king that he will take our sins upon himself as he did on the cross and that he will provide for us that righteousness, that moral perfection that is necessary to be accepted by the Father. So, what does Jesus say about the kingdom? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to look for those things. And again, we we don't have the time to walk through. We'll never get through this prophet, priest, and king study if I start walking through everything that Jesus says about the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also something else we find as Jesus teaches about the kingdom. And we find 
that the kingdom and the economy of the kingdom in particular is described through shrouded parables. Matthew chapter 13 through 20, we find a number of different parables. And one way that these have been described is they are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They're object lessons or illustrations of truths of what it means to be in the kingdom. And oftentimes they are begun with this formula, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then this comparison is made to these different stories that Jesus makes. Now, what's interesting is that in these stories, which we tend to gravitate towards, it's amazing how we are a people sort of built to hear stories and to listen to those type of things. And Jesus used that perfectly and masterfully in when He taught. But He also tells His disciples that the reason why He speaks in parables is so that His people Israel, who have persisted in their sin, would hear but not hear, that they would see, but not see, that they would come into contact with the message, but yet because they were spoken in parables, they would not truly know the nature of the kingdom. And we see this over and over again with the way the scribes, the Pharisees, would respond to Jesus' teachings and to these parables. Now, why would he do this? Why would he intentionally shroud the message that he had come to give about the kingdom. And the answer is, the greatest problem that the scribes and the Pharisees faced, the greatest obstacle to their entrance into the kingdom was their own pride. Their own righteousness. Their own rising up and saying, I will figure it out my way. And so what it would require then to understand the parables that Jesus taught would be to humble yourself and to come in dependence upon the Spirit to understand those things. That's what our text here this this evening speaks of. How did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ? It wasn't because flesh and blood had revealed it to him, but because the Father had revealed those things to him. And so these parables that we see, they describe a life that is filled with faith in the King a life that is typified by allegiance to the King, seeking to live a life in submission to Christ as King, and a life in which every aspect of a person's life is lived out in submission to Jesus as King. It is an all-encompassing, comprehensive call to live what you claim as you profess Christ, that He would be Lord of our lives. There's one reality, and there's been a teaching that has gone throughout the, throughout the church for years, and, and it speaks of, of the term, and I don't like the term as it's used, but the term lordship salvation. And on the other side of that viewpoint, there is the view that we are converted And then later on in life, that's when we make Jesus Lord of our life. And so the disagreement between the two is that, well, you make Christ Lord of your life at conversion. It's not something that happens later on. And I would agree with that assessment. You cannot come to Christ and find hope in Him and then live a life that is typified by rebellion against the King. What what happens to citizens of a kingdom that are treasonous towards the king. 
They're cast out. And so what Jesus reminds us as he gives us these these parables, as he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, is not that these things are what grant us entrance into the kingdom, but rather they are a consequence of our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And again, as the parables are given in shrouded ways, it also reminds us that entrance into the kingdom is given purely by the grace of God. Jesus describes entrance into the kingdom as given purely by the grace of God. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks of the purpose of his parables. Jesus, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of what? The kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Now, why does Jesus speak in this way? It is coming from a sense of condemnation and judgment. Notice what he says. This people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Notice that, and one of the things we're going to look at throughout this is that God is sovereignly working to save His people. He is the one who initiates, who saves He is the one who brings that about. But notice, what is the reason for these Israelites, these religious leaders, turning away from the truth? It's not, as Jesus puts the blame here, it's not because God has not chosen them. It is because their hearts have grown dull. And so as a result of that, they are responsible For their rebellion, their ears can barely hear, their eyes have closed, and they do this intentionally so that they would not see with their eyes and hear with the ears and understand their heart in their heart and turn. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1. The truth about God is evident to everyone who walks on the face of this planet. But what do men do in their unrighteousness? They suppress the truth. They, it, the idea there is of a clear evidence that they just push down and ignore. It's like a fire hydrant blowing up with all sorts of evidence and they just push down on that. They do this because men love darkness rather than light. Listen, the offensive part of the gospel is not believe in Jesus to be saved. 
And in reality, that's only half of the message, isn't it? The offensive part of the gospel is repent. And notice what these religious rulers are doing. They are not letting their hearts be open because they don't want to, Jesus puts it, turn. And Jesus puts a wonderful hope. It says, if all those who turn, what does He do? He heals them. So Jesus speaks to them in judgment. Speaks to them in parables so that they would continue to blithely go along in their rebellion. But then notice what He says to the disciples. And again, it's important to note that this is not something that the disciples have manufactured in and of themselves because they were somehow cleverer or because they somehow had some innate insight within themselves. It was purely by the grace of God. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In John, there's a story as Jesus had been going about and preaching, and, and he had been doing amazing miracles, particularly feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. I mean, that's amazing, right? You have somebody who can just manufacture food pretty much out of nothing. And so Jesus confronts these followers of his with a call, a shrouded call, an offensive call, but a call saying, listen, if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to be mine, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And of course, Jesus is speaking hyperbolic here. He's even speaking, I'd say, some, somewhat parabolic here to get the point across that you have to give full allegiance to Him. And after He said this, we see John 6, 66-68, after this, many of His, notice what He says here, disciples. Many of His disciples. There were crowds of people that would call themselves disciples of Christ. And what did they do when they heard this? They turned back and no longer walked with Him. They repented of their following of Jesus. And so Jesus looks to the twelve. Everyone else has gone away and there are twelve there. And He looks at them and confronts them. Do you want to go away as well. And so Peter, representing the twelve, says to him, answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter shows remarkable faith. He shows a repentance of following any other words. Listen, he, he comes to Christ and says, Look, nobody else, nobody else has the words that you have. 
I think this is one of the most distinguishing aspects of what it means to be a believer of Christ, a follower of Christ, is you have nowhere else to go to hear the things that he says. That every other philosophy or religion in the world leaves you empty and hopeless, but Christ has the words of eternal life. So you turn from all those other ways and you follow him. You believe in Him. You believe that He is the one. You don't even believe, you don't just believe it, but rather it is a fact of knowledge to you. I have come to know. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are the Holy One of God. And then as our text here this this evening points us to, Jesus comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And of course, there's lots of ideas of who Jesus is. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, was there anything wrong with John the Baptist? No. I mean, Jesus himself says that of those born to woman, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Was there anything wrong with Elijah? No. He was a clear communicator and prophet of God to Israel. There was nothing wrong with Jeremiah or any of the prophets. These things are absolutely true, but to say that Christ is those uh, is one of those reincarnated or come back to life misses the entire point. All of those men did great things, but they were not the Christ. And so Jesus turns to His disciples again, very much the same way He turned in John chapter 6, and says, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, how did Peter come to that conclusion? What's remarkable to see here, and this is, this is sort of towards the end of Jesus' public ministry, what's remarkable to see here is that Peter had seen Jesus do amazing things. He'd seen Him turn water into wine. He'd seen Him heal the paralytic. He'd seen him take a blind man who had been blind from his birth and and spit into the dirt and make new eyes for this man. He'd seen Jesus do amazing things in feeding the 5,000. He'd seen Jesus preach and proclaim the gospel in authoritative ways. But there were others, other crowds that had seen those same things, that experienced those same things. And listen, this is so important for us to recognize. It is not about necessarily coming into contact with the right things about Christ. There's something that is needed to recognize Him as your King, and that is the grace of God. And Jesus points to that. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, You did not come to this revelation through flesh and blood. It wasn't through the 
actions or the activities of your reasoning. It wasn't through my, even my earthly convincing words. It was from the Father who is in heaven. And so, we must recognize, as Jesus goes on to say, is that those who are brought into this wonderful relationship, he goes on to say in verse 18 of our text, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, and I won't get caught up in all the different interpretive ways that we can say of what the rock is, but Jesus makes a promise about his kingdom. He says, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a reality that we need to recognize that those who come by God's grace are entering into a kingdom, a church, an ecclesia, a group of individuals called out. That's what the term church means. Those that are called out, the called out ones. The congregation. We're entering that group as those who are given, in verse 19, the keys of the what? Kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The grace of God comes to us and shows us that by God's grace, by turning and repenting of our sins and turning to Jesus Christ alone, we now come to see Jesus as who He is, and we now enter into an unstoppable kingdom. Our verse that we use for our call to worship this morning, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a kingdom that is to come. That's where our hope is set. And so Jesus charges both Peter and us. Verse 19, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, interpretive mumbo-jumbo that goes on in verse 19. I think it's very simple if we really think about it in context. Because what does it mean that he's giving keys of the kingdom of heaven to the, the apostles? And whatever they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there are people who have built entire doctrines of, of how we have the ability to loose and to bind things here on earth. And, and there's been whole things built up around this. And, and the answer, I think, is very simple. What is it that loosed Peter to recognize that Christ was king? And what is it that bound people to continue in their sin? It was the grace of God. God's grace appearing to Peter showed him this reality. And so the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repenting of sin and believing in that, what does that do? It looses people. It takes them and frees them from their enslavement to this kingdom and allows them to find hope in the kingdom of Christ. And for those who reject that message, they are bound to the kingdom of this world. So how do we take what, ought, what is the kingdom or what are the keys to the kingdom? It is the message of the gospel. Jesus is Christ. Repent and believe in Him. You have the keys of the kingdom. 
Take it and share it with others. And those who accept it by God's grace are loosed. And those who reject it remain bound to the kingdom of darkness and this world. As Paul says, it is Christ who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus has described, again, the ethical implications of the kingdom with the Sermon on the Mount. He describes the economy of the kingdom through parables. He describes entrance into the kingdom purely by the grace of God. And then he describes the kingdom as those filled with those outside of Israel. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter 8, 10 through 13. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him. Now, this is about a man, a Gentile, who'd come and sought help from Christ. And, and people were astonished that Jesus would even talk to this Gentile. And Jesus himself sees the faith of this man and, and speaks hope to him. And as Jesus sees this and marvels, he says to those who are following him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in, no one in Israel have I found such faith. Among my own people I haven't sound, found such faith. And then he says this wonderful hope of what the kingdom look like, looks like. It's not restricted simply to those who are of the physical descendants of Abraham. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the what? Kingdom of heaven. Well, the sons of the kingdom, this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And that very moment, the servant was healed. Jesus brings a message of a kingdom that includes not simply those who are from Abraham's lineage, but for all those who come and recognize Christ as king. And they are brought and given an entrance into the kingdom of which both Abraham or of which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob share. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book, but Hebrews chapter 11, where we consider the hall of faith is amazing because it speaks of all three of these, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it speaks of how they were able to accomplish things not because they were of Israel, but because they were of faith. And so Jesus is teaching that the kingdom is filled with those outside of Israel. The final thing we see Jesus describing about entrance into the kingdom, it is granted to those who come with humble, childlike faith. And this is interesting as, as we close up looking at what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. If we truly understand that our 
entrance into the kingdom, our recognition of sin and repentance of it and turning to Christ in faith comes only by the grace of God, then do we have any reason to boast? No. And so Jesus uses a very simple illustration. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now here we have his disciples. These are the twelve, one of the twelve, several of the twelve. And who are they all about? Even at this point, they've been spending years with Jesus. And who are they all about? Themselves. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? What do I have to do to climb the corporate ladder in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus calls to him a child. And he puts him in the midst of them and says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn, repent, repent of that pride, and become like children, you will When will you enter the kingdom? Never. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does what? Humbles himself. Like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus himself, as he is teaching and and preaching, and the disciples see that there are children that are wanting to come to him, and the disciples are saying, don't bother the master. Jesus hears this. He's actually angry with his disciples. And he says to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs what? The kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. No pride will bring us into the kingdom of heaven. We've got to empty ourselves of all of our self-righteousness, of all of our pride, and we must come humbly like a little child to find entrance in the kingdom of Christ. So how are we to respond to this kingdom? After we've seen everything that Jesus has said about the kingdom, his teaching, the, the message of the gospel, what should our response be? Well, first of all, we must enter the kingdom through repentance and faith in the king. Again, Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We cannot enter unless we truly turn aside any allegiance to anything else but Christ. And then we trust in the king as our only hope for entrance, just as that thief on the cross did. So what role then should the kingdom of God have in our lives? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? The kingdom needs to be what priority in our lives? First, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And Luke, likely quoting the same thing, speaks 
a little bit more comprehensively. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. So if we have the kingdom given to us from God, then what should we do with our possessions? Sell them. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you treasure the kingdom of Christ above all things, that's where your heart will be. And so we need to seek the kingdom as the first priority in our lives. Thirdly, we need to pray for the advance of the kingdom in our own life and in the world. Again, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And notice what the first request of the Lord's Prayer is. It's not, fix my problem. It's not even, give me my daily bread. It's not, help so-and-so with their issues. Now listen, all of those things are legitimate things to come before the Lord and ask, but notice what the first request is. After recognizing who God is, recognizing that He has a hallowed name, our prayer is, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to pray for the advance of the kingdom in our own life and in the world. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying, first of all, that the kingdom would come in our own lives. That we would be focused and caught up in those truths. And then we're praying that God would advance the kingdom through the spread of the gospel. Again, we have the keys of the kingdom. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we need to take that message and hand those keys to other people. And we need to pray for missionaries. We need to pray for the gospel as it goes around the world and here locally, sharing the hope of Christ. And then the final way we can respond to the kingdom of Christ is to patiently wait for the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's Return. This is something that we're going to look at next Sunday morning. Jesus tells us in John 14, as he tells his disciples that he's going away, he tells them, don't let your hearts be what? Troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I, what, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And so Thomas asks, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? We have one of the most well-known verses in Scripture. Jesus said to him, I 
am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is coming back. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Why would he prepare a place for us if he wasn't going to come back? That's the rhetorical question he asks. And the answer is, well, he wouldn't. Does Jesus do anything that is useless? No. So right now, as he is preparing the kingdom for the consummation of his people, we look with expectation that Jesus is coming back. And so we must then continue to know the way, the truth, the life. Jesus Christ as our only hope. This is the teaching of Christ as King. And may we respond to it by entering the kingdom through repentance and faith, seeking the kingdom as the first priority in our lives, praying for the advance of the kingdom in our own lives and in the world, and patiently waiting for the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. And Lord, I just pray that you would take the hope that we have in Christ as our King and that we would seek to live it every day, to live it out before the world around us. Father, work in our hearts as only you can. We pray all this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. I'm done six minutes early, so it did happen. Have a great week.